Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. After brutally battering the reigning heavyweight champion to seize the title in 1962, Sonny Liston said the following when asked if his opponent, Floyd Patterson, was a coward. There's a big difference between having fear in you and being a coward. I can have fear in me, too, and that kind of fear is good. Then I'd go into the ring and because I had this fear, I'd try to take the other guy out as quick as I could. Patterson had fear in him, but he wasn't no coward. The question came up in part because Liston was a uniquely terrifying figure in the world of boxing still regarded by many today as the most intimidating boxer of all time based solely on what he could do to you in the ring. Even other notoriously intimidating and terrifying heavyweights such as George Foreman and Mike Tyson have essentially hailed Liston as the scariest boxer of all time. Add to that Liston's criminal history and alleged mob ties, and you could see why, in hindsight, some people thought the more gentlemanly Patterson was scared of the man especially considering how long Floyd had avoided giving Liston a title shot. Floyd denied being afraid, which I find interesting in contrast with Liston's quote, possibly the scariest boxer to ever live was not ashamed to admit to being afraid, citing it as motivation to win matches. While his eventually felled opponent could never admit to such fear, especially prior to the fight, perhaps out of fear of giving Liston a psychological advantage. This being a podcast exploring how fear is, indeed, sometimes bad for us, but often can be healthy, it's no surprise I've latched on to Liston's quote. Once upon a time, I thought of fear purely as a failing, something that was holding me back. In hindsight, some of the fears I had of making a wrong decision or doing something rash or stupid were entirely founded. On the other hand, certain fears I had did indeed keep me from pursuing things or following through on things I should have done much sooner. Recognizing which fears are rational and ought to be protected, and can even be used to your advantage, versus the fears that truly hinder progress or that will later leave us with regrets, that can be quite challenging. There are times, however, when fear doesn't really let you think in the moment, at least not the way we're used to. It just kind of takes over and it's not until later that we can look back and try to process what our fears led us to do. Often, heroes in fiction are presented as fearless, never losing control, almost unaffected by the stakes of the situation at times. Other times, overcoming their panic or hesitation is a core part of the story. And to be clear, in real life and in fiction, such bravery does have its place. The Losers Club in Stephen King's It, for instance, don't make any real headway against their tormentor, Pennywise, until they stop being quite so afraid of him. The litany against fear in Frank Herbert's Dune condemns fear as a mind killer that brings quote-unquote total obliteration that must be entirely overcome, and the protagonist uses this mantra to help him pass a trial that will subject him to extraordinary, excruciating pain. 
Interestingly, side note a little bit, the litany is apparently inspired by the famous quote from Shakespeare's Julius Caesar, quote, Cowards die many times before their death. The valiant never taste of death but once. Caesar then says he believes it's foolish for people to fear death since it has to happen to everyone, and he thinks you can't control your fate. These are admittedly pretty cool quotes from Caesar on their own, but I think it's worth pointing out that, in the context of the play, they reflect Caesar's arrogant refusal to even acknowledge the possibility that death is a legitimate and immediate threat to him, and that it's okay to be afraid of that in the interest of self-preservation. Calpurnia, his wife, is begging him to stay home on the day he's prophesied to be murdered, and earlier in the act, he dismisses her concern by saying anyone or anything meaning to harm him would only do so behind his back. When he goes to face those dangers and look them eye to eye, they'll disappear, presumably because they're so afraid of him, they'll shrink back into the shadows. Again, sounds very impressive, but it also makes it easier to set him up to be assassinated. His enemies play on his arrogant need to never even appear to be afraid, luring him out of the house after Calpurnia had finally convinced him to just stay home for the day. Caesar goes forth, not dying the many metaphorical deaths of a coward, but a valiant, single, very literal death, which is really the only type of death you need a guy to go through when you're trying to actually kill him. And that prevents him from living out all of his ambitions. Now, this is not a criticism of Herbert's masterpiece Dune for taking some literary inspiration from Shakespeare's Caesar, which should go without saying, but it is a light jab at people who might take those Shakespearean quotes out of context and to heart. The healthier fear of death in Shakespeare's Caesar might have saved him from being stabbed up by a host of senators, which I think is a pretty explicit element of the story. The point here is that fear is not always a hindrance. The motivational and even strengthening potential of fear does appear on occasion in works of fiction. One of my favorite lines in a book comes from Walter Mosley's Devil in a Blue Dress, where the lead character, Easy Rollins, says the following regarding a specific combat experience he had in World War II. The first time I fought a German hand-to-hand, I screamed for help the whole time I was killing him. I think of that line anytime I read or watch a scene in which a character successfully fights for their life all while terrified, particularly if they end up killing their attacker. I wonder if part of what saved Easy's life in that situation was that he might have been more afraid of death than the German soldier was. In the original Halloween, famously, much was made of Laurie Strode not being sexually active and tying that to her survival as some kind of theme or message. What always stood out to me, though, is that she's the only person among the targeted teenagers in the film who has time to be afraid well before she is attacked. All of Michael's on-screen kills are sneak attacks. Annie and Linda are both killed when they have their backs to him and don't even suspect that a threat is present. Bob is so taken by surprise in the kitchen that there's already a hand on his throat the instant he has a chance to know what's going on. And Michael's sister reacts with annoyance, not fear, when Michael enters her room, apparently not seeing the knife until it's being used on her. Michael tries the same thing on Lori, attacking her from behind a couple of times, and really just blows a layup whenever he has a chance to kill her. But her fear also drives her to fight back in a way her friends never even had a chance to. First, she delivers a perfect turnaround neck stab with a knitting needle. Then, when she's trapped in a closet, seemingly doomed, her fear drives her to try something desperate. Fashion a clothes hanger into a pointed rod that she can stab into the madman's eye. 
which she successfully does in the dark. Michael's out here shooting air balls right at the rim while Lori's hitting three-pointers in the clutch. And there's nothing within the story to suggest that she should be any good at defending herself. The one advantage that she has, the one thing that's saving her life, is that she's terrified. And she knows she'll be killed if she doesn't fight back. There is pure terror on her face when she reaches up for and uses the metal hanger. Her eyes are full of tears as she clutches the knitting needle. Her terror gives her the ability to kill her would-be killer. In some other stories, fear doesn't just fuel an immediate fight-or-flight benefit. It inspires a person to be better prepared for the worst. In Neil Stevenson's novel Snow Crash, the hero, named Hero, is driven by the fear of a near-death experience to train himself more strenuously than he otherwise would, preparing for his next potential encounter with the Raven, the baddest man in the world, and the one who almost killed him. This training proves essential later when their climactic encounter inevitably arrives. In the third of Christopher Nolan's Batman films, The Dark Knight Rises, Bruce Wayne is coached to use the fear of death as an adrenaline booster that will help him jump across a distance so that he can escape a prison. He's specifically told that he failed in his previous efforts because he jumped with a makeshift safety harness, and that the person who made the leap before him, a child no less, managed it because they knew if they fell, it was all over. Their fear of death gave them the strength to make the jump. When Bruce takes that advice, it works out for him as well. Exaggerated though this may be for heroic effect, it is rooted in reality. Frightening situations make our hearts race to increase blood flow, which in turn increases availability of oxygen throughout our bodies and boosts our energy. It can make our eyes dilate to draw in more light and improve visibility. Fear can also produce an adrenaline rush, and adrenaline is known to decrease your ability to feel pain and temporarily increase strength. There is, of course, a limit to how much this might benefit you. Adrenaline might lessen how much pain you feel, for instance, but it doesn't lessen the damage done to you. Nonetheless, an underrated aspect of adrenaline, which, again, is often the product of fear of immediate peril, is an increase in focus. This is represented in The Matrix, when a do-or-die situation forces Neo to immediately learn to dodge bullets. Given that The Matrix itself is a mental construct, this is entirely something he's doing with his mind, not his body. And he is clearly afraid the moment before the agent shoots at him. It's evident in his voice as he asks Trinity for help. Later, when he's stopping bullets with his mind instead of merely dodging them, he seems no longer even capable of being scared. But he couldn't have gotten to that point had he not been so afraid for his life earlier that he was able to take the next mental step in understanding how to bend the laws of this world to his will. Some people, unfortunately, have a different response to fear. For some, terror is something that can lead them to make a mistake. For others, it can be crippling or even paralytic. In my favorite horror movie, Alien, one of the crew members of the Nostromo, Lambert, becomes petrified in the presence of the titular alien that has invaded their vessel. By the way, and I've, I've written this on my blog before, but I've always struggled with calling the alien a xenomorph in my head. It's always just been the alien that captures its menace better to me, but I digress. Lambert's inability to even move away from the alien makes the fight response of her colleague Parker useless. He has a flamethrower that might help keep the creature at bay long enough for both of them to get away from it, but he can't fire at it without hitting Lambert, and she is rooted in place. 
her motor skills have effectively shut down on her. Parker's fight instincts are still driving him, however. The only thing he can think to do, since he can't use the flamethrower, is charge the creature. Engage it directly. He sacrifices himself so that Lambert could get away while the alien is fighting and killing him. But she still doesn't move. Surely she hears him tell her to run, just like he told her earlier to move out of the way, but at best, she can't get her body to obey the command. She might not even be processing what she is hearing. Her fear has consumed her, and it's overriding even her flight response, much less the fight response. One of my favorite scenes among many in the second film in the Alien series sees Ripley openly admit to being scared when she and her effectively adopted surrogate daughter Newt are trapped in the med lab with two facehuggers. The fact that she can verbalize her fear, even with something as simple as Me Too in response to Newt saying I'm scared, shows that Ripley is, at minimum, still thinking relatively clearly in spite of how hopeless things seem. All of her efforts are geared toward escape. She knows that she can't win a literal fight with this small, tenacious animal. There's no forced, stoic bravery interfering with her fight for survival, however. She and Newt need to get out or get help. They can't open the door or break the shatterproof glass window to get away. Waving at the security camera doesn't work because the person who set them up to die, Burke, Burke, he cut off the video feed before anyone else could see it. Ripley keeps her wits enough to try something else, though. She holds a flame to the sprinkler system, activating it and the fire alarm bringing the armed space marines who can shoot the facehuggers to pieces into the room to the rescue. Ellen Ripley, our hero, couldn't win that particular fight, but she had allies who could, and there wasn't anything less heroic about what she did to get them involved. That allowed her to live to fight another day, which she does so magnificently later in the film. That all eventually comes about because of an earlier moment where she was able to acknowledge that she was afraid of being killed. In another famous and highly influential 80s action film, the hero spends even more of the movie very obviously afraid of what's happening to them and around them, despite frequently cracking jokes to mask their fear at least as much as to taunt the villains. He wouldn't be the first hero to do this. Spider-Man has admitted more than once that he cracks jokes while fighting to hide how nervous he is, as well as to aggravate his opponents, possibly to the extent that they'll make a mistake. This is what set him apart from cool, collected heroes like James Bond, who is also quick with a quip, but is almost never portrayed as remotely worried about what might happen next. Beyond Bond, this was fairly standard for action movie heroes, even dating back to decades that predate the more general term action movie, when things were categorized more so by the subgenres of westerns, war movies, crime movies, spy movies, etc. Even before almost every hero was cracking jokes or delivering cold-blooded one-liners, they were still notably fearless. By the 80s, almost all of them were either scowling or laughing in the face of danger. And John McClane did let himself smile a few times. But he was just as often wide-eyed, panicked, 
and even praying not to die. At no point in Die Hard does he ever lose the sense of urgency that fear instills in him. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Die Hard is obviously not a scary movie, but it does have tense moments that would be frightening in real life and could place viewers at the edge of their seats in a way that something like, say, Rambo 3 or Mission in Action 3 could not. Those other two movies also came out in 1988 and are a much better reflection of the state of the action hero overall at the time. That same year also saw the ever-composed Dirty Harry return for the Deadpool and saw Schwarzenegger in his most stone-faced role this side of the Terminator in Red Heat. Even in excellent action films from earlier in the decade like Lethal Weapon or The Predator, the lead hero is never close to as unnerved as McLean is. Dutch in Predator does find himself in a precarious position and a little bit more fearful than the standard Schwarzenegger protagonist, but even he is nowhere near as scared as McLean is. McLean wasn't the first frightened action hero, but men like Kyle Reese were in very short supply compared to their counterparts, and more often appeared in films that were as close to horror as they were action, such as The Terminator. Die Hard, meanwhile, almost had the vibe of a 70s or early 80s suspense thriller in places, which I think is evident in the better of its two original promotional posters. The lesser of the two is a much more conventional and boring shot of the hero holding a gun, looking determined. It's a dime a dozen image that looks like no significant thought went into it. The other poster, though, is split between McLean's subtly anxious face looking like he might have just heard someone coming or is worried that he made a sound that gave away his hiding place, while the other half of the poster shows the Nakatomi Plaza at night, looking like the building itself is the menace with its roof exploding. It has more in common with the poster for the horror-tinged disaster picture The Towering Inferno than any other poster for an action film released in 1988. McLean's expression also makes me think of Meryl Streep's expression on the poster for the 1983 political thriller Silkwood far more than, say, Steven Seagal's icy glower on the poster for Above the Law. Die Hard even has a scene at the end where a murderous villain, previously thought dead, springs to life for one last chance to kill the hero. 
That was, by then, a slasher film staple, and it was brazenly employed here by the biggest action thrill ride of the year. And I mention all of this because, again, John McClane is appropriately afraid, at least as much as you can expect a hero in this genre to be, throughout Die Hard. Much was made at the time, and rightfully so, about the contrast in physical appearance between Bruce Willis and the standard for action stars of the era. Everyone else was either muscular or, in the case of Eastwood, noticeably taller and therefore still physically imposing, or, with the likes of Seagal and Chuck Norris, known to be martial arts practitioners would still put their physicality at the forefront. Willis as McLean is much more of an everyman. In later years, he'd bulk up some, and the McLean character would eventually become more like a superhero and less like his original self. But that first iteration of John McClane is a man who is regularly afraid for his life and for the lives he is responsible for due to the circumstance he finds himself in. More than the physical appearance, that's what really set him apart from his contemporaries. Even when he gets a machine gun, ho ho ho, that brings him closer to the level of firepower the villains have, it doesn't turn him into a super confident quote-unquote badass. You can do an image search of McLean firing this machine gun while shouting and see the panic pulling his face in every direction. Compare that to John Rambo's grunting and roaring as he empties his machine gun in the second film of that franchise, and the difference couldn't be much clearer. Rambo's posing for a poster. McLean looks like he's actually in a gunfight and worried about getting hit. Instead of just comparing him to other heroes of that era, however, I think the more interesting comparison between McLean's fear and another person's relative stoicism is available within the film Die Hard itself. Hans Gruber never sincerely appears to be afraid until it's too late to be of any use to him. Even when he's hanging outside a skyscraper, hundreds of feet above the ground, the only thing keeping him from plummeting to his death being the tenuous grip he has on a woman's wrist, he doesn't look scared, not at first. He sneers and calmly raises his gun, planning to kill his nemesis as a final act before he checks out. Hans is not emotionless throughout the film. He gets frustrated, impatient, and even angry, but never to a degree that seems to approach real concern. He never seems to believe he's losing control of the situation until after he's lost control. To be fair, he has cause to be confident. His plan, while merciless, is pretty strong by action villain standards. He believes, as he states, that he has left nothing to chance. And it's really just the extraordinary misfortune of a guy like McLean being there on that particular night that is his undoing. Still, he has hostages, superior numbers, and firepower on his side compared to the lone man disrupting his operation. Hell, even the majority of the law enforcement personnel involved is unwittingly doing what Hans wants them to do. Now, the very nature of what he's trying to do, this high-risk, high-reward, homicidal heist, should probably be enough to inspire a little bit of healthy fear in him on its own. But it doesn't. When Hans makes jokes, he sounds more like James Bond than McLean does. And not just because of Alan Rickman's wonderful English, definitely not Hans-like accent. His one-liner after killing Takagi is delivered nonchalantly and almost sounds like he wrote it in advance, expecting he'd have to kill somebody and wanting to have a prepared statement for the occasion. McLean, meanwhile, 
frequently has his brief moments of levity undercut by something horrific. He's a good guy in the relatable sense of not just caring about his own survival, but that of others as well, even people he doesn't know or personally like. Within seconds of delivering a decent little insult at Hans' expense, he's horrified to find out he has to make a decision that will determine a man's fate, a man he just met that night, the memorably annoying, in an oddly captivating way, Ellis. John's voice reaches a higher pitch as he pleads with the unfeeling Hans and the overconfident Ellis, desperately wanting to save the latter's life, while probably knowing it's impossible. And it doesn't matter that Ellis is unlikable. John doesn't think he deserves to die. He's afraid for the man's life, but he also knows that he doesn't really have a choice here. Ellis is trying to get John to give detonators back to the terrorists, which would cost even more lives. Dirty Harry might have growled at Ellis and told him he was a moron and deserved what was coming if he didn't listen to what Harry had to say. John Rambo might have coldly, angrily told Hans to do what he had to do, but know that his hours were numbered, John was coming for him. But McLean is afraid that he can't save this man or anyone else held hostage in the building, which would include his wife or even himself. And yes, some of his fear almost certainly is driven by the fact that he can't be sure that Ellis won't tell Hans that Holly is John's wife. But after Ellis dies, John does not appear relieved as though happy that his secret will be kept. When he hears Ellis die, he is visibly disturbed and temporarily speechless. It takes Hans openly threatening to kill more hostages, assured that he will eventually kill someone John is personally connected to, to coax a final response out of John. You know, I'm putting my life on the line for you, pal. Ellis, listen to me very carefully. John. Shut up, Ellis. Just shut your mouth. Put Hans back on the line. Hans, this head does not know what kind of man you are, but I do. Listen. Good. Then you'll give us what we want and save your friend's life. You're not part of this equation. It's time you realized that. Hey, what am I, a method actor, Hans? <laughs> Babe, put away the gun. This is radio, not television. <laughs> Hans, this asshole is not my friend. I just met him tonight. I don't know him. Jesus Christ, Ellis, these people are going to kill you. Tell them you don't know me. <laughs> John, how can you say that after all these years, huh? John. John. detonators where are they or shall I shoot another one sooner or later I might get to someone you do care about go fuck yourself Hans when he finally insults Hans one more time it's nothing witty or forceful he sounds emotionally spent the manifestation of something you feared can do that but it also empowers him to keep fighting because even besides Holly, there are other lives like Ellis's that are worth fighting for. It gives him a sense of urgency that continually propels him against the odds that should be insurmountable. When caught between the fear of dying in an explosion and the fear of falling from a skyscraper with nothing but a hastily tied fire hose around his waist, the fear of what he can't survive wins out. He prays, please don't let me die, then takes a chance that still almost kills him, 
but the difference between dying and almost dying is sometimes big enough to fit an entire lifetime inside of it. Later in the film, Hans, in a somewhat similar predicament as I mentioned before, shows no fear when faced with his own do-or-die dilemma. At least, not at first. John and Holly are both afraid of her getting dragged out the window to fall along with Hans, and John works frantically to unclasp Holly's watch to loosen Hans's grip on her wrist. Hans is only thinking of killing, not anything he could do to save himself. That is, until the watch clasp does come undone, and Hans starts to fall, and his eyes famously look like they're going to pop out of his head, like they're trying to jump back into the building and leave his falling body behind. Now, at long last, Hans feels fear, after it's become useless to him. Maybe if he had embraced it a little sooner, he might have stood a better chance against the man who was letting it fuel him all night long. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Healthy Fears podcast, which is now officially back for season two. Healthy Fears is written, produced, and narrated by Johnny Compton. For transcripts and research notes, if applicable for each episode, visit healthyfears.com. If you're interested in my writing, my publication credits and links to some of my stories can be found at johnnycompton.com. My debut novel, The Spite House, is currently scheduled to be released by Tor Nightfire on February 7th, 2023, which hopefully gives you more than enough time to clear out some space for it in your budget. The subject of next week's episode is premature burials, for anyone who's interested. Until then, do remember the words of the late lauded actor Christopher Plummer from the film Nine. Sometimes fear is the appropriate response. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.